0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 17th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Let's get started with our litigation report. A significant number of professional athletes, including NFL players, have filed claims before the California Workers' Compensation Appeals Board for industrial injuries, even if they live elsewhere. Jurisdiction in California is based upon a number of scenarios. Some are based upon the player having played at least one game in California during the alleged continuous trauma period. Some cases where the player was never in California based jurisdiction upon the fact that the contract of employment was entered into in California because the player's contract was mailed here for a California agent to sign. There is now a great deal of litigation between the NFL teams and these players with the teams attempting to limit the ability of players to proceed under California law. One closely watched case was filed by Bruce Matthews who played NFL football from 1983 to 2002. Matthews was employed by the Houston Oilers and its successors the Tennessee Titans. As a member of the NFL Matthews was bound by a collective bargaining agreement negotiated by the NFL Players Association on behalf of all NFL players. Matthews' contract stated that all issues of law, issues of fact, and matters related to workers' compensation benefits shall be exclusively determined by and exclusively decided in accordance with the internal laws of the state of Tennessee. Approximately five years after he left the NFL, Matthews filed a workers' compensation claim here in California. This ran contrary to the contract with the Titans and the Titans filed a grievance against Matthews which was sent to an arbitrator to decide. An issue was whether Matthews violated his player contract with the Titans by filing a claim for workers' compensation benefits in California and requesting it be processed under California law. In August 2010, the arbitrator found that Matthews violated his player contract and issued an arbitration award forcing Matthews to proceed under Tennessee law, although he was not prevented from filing the claim here in California. Matthews filed suit in a federal district court in San Diego, requesting the court to vacate the arbitration award. He argued that the award was contrary to California law and public policy. He claimed that California policy prevents contractual waivers of its workers' compensation protections. The employer argued that California favors enforcing choice of law agreements. After reviewing the Supreme Court 1935 case of Alaska Packers Association versus the Industrial Accident Commission of California and other cases, a federal judge upheld the arbitration award. The court reasoned that California law does not provide an explicit, well-defined, and dominant public policy barring all contractual waivers of California workers' comp law. It has instead evidenced a nuanced analysis in which courts considered the extent of California's interests in providing workers' compensation. Further appeals are now being contemplated by Mr. Matthews, which may or may not end up in his favor. The Court of Appeals orders apportionment in a case where the AME opinion met state standards. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Solano County Probation Department versus WCAB Aguilar. Paula Aguilar suffered industrial injuries to her left shoulder, left elbow, low back, and left hip. Peter Mandel, MD, acting as an AME, noted that Aguilar had pre-existing arthritis in her left hip. Dr. Mandel at first concluded in 2002 that the arthritis was not symptomatic or disabling. Therefore, in his opinion, all of Aguilar's hip disability should be apportioned to her work. His first opinion was consistent with California existing law on apportionment in 2002. In 2004, the legislature substantially changed the law of apportionment pursuant to SB 899. So, When Dr. Mandel examined Aguilar again in 2005, he apportioned approximately two-thirds of her disability to the CT and the rest to arthritis. In May 2006, Dr. Mandel felt that the growing medical evidence in the literature showed obesity played a role in spinal disease and spinal problems and thus he said that 10 percent of the spine disability was caused by obesity. Later, during his deposition, he changed his opinion on spine apportionment based on obesity after reading further medical articles on the topic. All of the spine disability ended up industrial after his deposition. The apportionment issues were submitted to the workers' compensation judge, who determined that none of Aguilar's disability should be apportioned to non-industrial causes. Among other reasons, the work comp judge claimed that Dr. Mandel's opinions were confusing and that he had not sufficiently explained how and why the pre-existing factors caused disability as required by board president. The board denied the employer's petition for reconsideration, but the court of appeal annulled the decision of the board and remanded the case. The court of appeal found that Dr. Mandel's reports and testimony adequately explained the basis for his opinions on apportionment under the standards set by the state's courts. There was no basis on which the work comp judge could reject it or assume it away. A WCAB panel decision suggests that a VR expert should provide a written report to support an Olgavy claim. Litigation pursuant to the controversial 2009 case of Olgavy versus City and County of San Francisco is becoming more common in workers' compensation cases. To support or rebut a claim that the effects of an injury diminish the future earning capacity of a claimant, attorneys often call vocational experts as witnesses. Unlike medical experts, there is no provision in the labor code or regulations that would require such a VR expert to prepare a written report, nor is there any language that would mandate that such a report be received in evidence without testimony even if it were prepared by the expert. As Olgavy claims evolve on a case-by-case basis, we learn how to effectively present these cases at trial. A recent panel decision of Cohen versus Sheridan Assisted Living provides some guidance. Cohen attempted to increase the rating by calling a vocational expert to testify, consistent with the requirements in Olgavy. The work comp judge did not award an increase based upon this testimony because the oral testimony was vague and not convincing. The WCAB panel decision suggested that it would have been prudent for the expert to provide written documentation of the calculations, which includes the complex mathematical equations in addition to the oral testimony. These calculations are more difficult to follow when presented orally. Any such report would have to be identified on the MSA statement and served on the opposing party. Thus, although it is not a requirement, the logic of this suggestion seems reasonable. And in regulatory news, a new RAND study claims that the workers' compensation return to work rates have improved over the last decade. The two most widely accepted benchmarks for the effectiveness of a workers' compensation system are measures of the adequacy of benefits and the affordability of the system. Unfortunately, the two benchmarks are somewhat contradictory. Cutting benefits would make the system more affordable, but also reduce benefit adequacy. Similarly, increasing benefits would improve adequacy, but make the system more expensive. But Rand points out that it is possible to improve the adequacy of work comp benefits without harming affordability. Improving the frequency or speed of return to work for permanently disabled workers can achieve improvements in both benchmarks. When when return to work frequency improves, the system becomes more affordable while leading to improved outcomes for disabled workers at the same time. Policy efforts to promote return-to-work can be classified into three broad categories, medical management-based, incentive-based, and accommodation-based approaches. Over the past 10 years, California has adopted reforms that affect all of these broad policy categories. To evaluate the return-to-work of injured and disabled workers since the reforms, RAND analyzed data from 2000 to 2007 and published their findings this January. Beginning in mid to late 2002, a prior trend of declining return-to-work statistics appeared to reverse and return-to-work frequency began to improve. Workers injured in 2005 and the beginning of 2006 had higher relative employment on average at both one and two years after injury than workers injured in early 2000. The data suggests that the most severely injured workers experienced the biggest gains in return to work over this period. These are the workers who typically have the worst post-injury outcomes, so this represents a significant improvement in return to work. The fact that the trend appeared prior to 2004 indicates that the improvements were not entirely driven by the return to work provisions of SB 899. The trend may have also been influenced by other factors, such as changes to the medical treatment system, the strengthening of provisions of FIHA, or simply the employer's own efforts to improve return to work in an effort to minimize costs. And now some financial news. The insurance industry November employment numbers show an overall slight increase, according to the Insurance Information Institute, or III. Employment and claims adjusting was down by 100 jobs in November, but that segment added 400 jobs in October. Property and casualty carrier employment dropped by 300 jobs compared to October. The number is still barely 100 above September, which was the lowest property and casualty carrier employment level in the last 20 years. The ranks of insurance agents and brokers rose by 2,100 jobs, bringing the job numbers back to where they were at the start of 2010. U.S. reinsurance industry employment dropped also by 200 jobs. However, this segment is up by 1,000 jobs since the beginning of 2010. Life insurance carriers' employment numbers rose by 1,300 jobs, while health insurers shed 1,000 jobs in November compared to October. The industry as a whole is down 15,600 jobs for the 12 months ending in November 2010. And in medical news, a new study by Dutch researchers claims that surgical checklists not only save lives by preventing medical errors, they could also make a big dent in medical malpractice claims. And they could save money, too, by preventing complications that require further treatment. One 2010 study estimated that avoidable mistakes cost the U.S. more than $55 billion annually or 2.4% of the country's total healthcare spending. Yet, only about a fourth of U.S. hospitals use one of the three checklists that have been proven to work. Researchers who reviewed data from the largest medical liability insurer in the Netherlands found that nearly one third of the claims arose from mistakes that likely could have been caught by a checklist. This conclusion confirms earlier studies, which show that when healthcare providers follow a checklist, they reduce deaths dramatically. In the current study, the researchers identified the main reasons for errors in 294 successful malpractice claims related to surgeries. They then compared those to the items on a comprehensive surgical checklist called SURPASS, which is now used in several hospitals in the Netherlands. It includes simple things like making sure the operating schedule is correct, Checking that all equipment is available and marking on which side of the patient the surgery is going to happen. They found 29% of the reasons something had gone wrong corresponded to an item on the checklist. And in four of the 10 deaths in the claims database, at least one of the contributing factors was addressed in the checklists. While there is no guarantee that checklists would actually have averted those deaths had it been used at the time, the researchers say it would likely have prevented a considerable amount of damage, both physical and financial. One surgeon from the Harvard School of Public Health in Boston, who has written extensively on the topic, said that the research evidence indicates that surgeons who do not use one of these checklists are endangering patients. And our fraud report. Rob Cavazos has been arrested on 12 separate counts of insurance fraud, including one count of grand theft for filing false claims with the State Compensation Insurance Fund. Cavazos was booked into the Fresno County Jail with bail bail set at $75,000. Skiff reported receiving a workers' compensation claim for a left shoulder injury from Cavazos while he worked for PPS Packaging in Fowler, California. Investigators say that a year later, his treating physician found that he had been misrepresenting his left shoulder's range of motion and notified the insurance carrier. Later, three days of subrosa video was taken, which showed him carrying items with no left shoulder range of motion problems. After the Subrosa video was reviewed, medical doctors believed that Cavazos misrepresented the pain and mobility level of his injury and was making a choice not to show a full range of motion. Skiff has paid out over $23,000 in benefits and estimates that over $11,000 was paid because of the misrepresentation. During his arrest, it was also determined that he was in possession of forged government documents. The DA will determine if additional charges will be filed. This case was investigated by the Fresno Fraud Division of the Department of Insurance and the Selma Police Department. And in other news, American Claims Management has promoted three of its employees from Assistant Vice President to Senior Vice President of their respective divisions. Deidre Millwood is now Senior Vice President of Workers' Compensation. Deidre began her career in workers' compensation at Golden Eagle Insurance and has since held various technical and management positions at Octagon Risk Services and American Commercial Claims Management. Deidre joined the American Claims Management as Assistant Vice President of Workers' Compensation Claims in 2008. With over 15 years claims experience, she has an exceptional background in multi-jurisdictional workers' compensation claims from both a carrier and 30, third-party administrator perspective. Dara Patel is now Senior Vice President of Commercial Casualty, and Dune Pagaduan is Senior Vice President of Personal Lines. Last month, ACM announced a new business relationship with Zurich North American. Effective December 1, ACM will commence handling all California workers' compensation claims from policies written through Arrowhead General Insurance Agency with a policy inception date of December 1 or later. American Claims Management has been an independent national third-party claims administrator since 1988, specializing in both commercial and personal lines. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes store. Again, I'm Renee Folse with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for some more news.